0: Let's pray and and jump in this morning. Father, uh, we do just commit this morning to you. It's the reason we're here. Uh, We're not here just to be entertained. We're not here just because we have nothing to do. We're here because we want to be a part of what you're doing in this world. We want to be a part of um, a group of of believers. We want to belong. We want to have a community of faith. And and so I just pray that this morning you would be glorified, that you would be the center of of our worship. You'd be our, our focus and that somehow walking out of here, we'd be encouraged, we'd be affirmed um, in what this, this thing is, the, the Christian life that we're trying to live. And we pray that in Christ's name. Amen. If you have a Bible with you this morning, turn to the Gospel of John. And this morning is a little bit of a prelude. We've been in John, and we're going to kind of just have a short little message on kind of a transition Piece. And then next week, actually, we have uh, the blessing of having Daniel Wallace, who's a, a New Testament scholar at, at Dallas Seminary, who's going to be in town for the Apologetics Conference, which, um, everyone raise your hand. Okay. Um, now, if you've already signed up for the Apologetics Conference, put your hand down. Um, and then the rest of you... Uh, I'm sorry, I couldn't resist. Um, The rest of you need to sign up for the Apologetics Conference. It's it's an amazing opportunity we have. We're bringing in next Friday and Saturday. Um, We're bringing in some of the top New Testament scholars. It's just going to be a great conference. Literally a couple hundred dollars uh, worth of a conference you can get for $45. But Daniel Wallace, who's coming in um, to speak at that conference, is going to be sharing next Sunday morning. He's actually going to be doing Redux too. So it'll be a real fun thing to kind of pepper him with questions about Scripture and in Greek and other things like that. But the week after that, we're starting into a four-week series on John chapter 15. And John chapter 15 is, is kind of a famous passage on the vine and the branches where Jesus uses this metaphor of being a vine and likens us to branches. And he talks about our relationship with him uh, within that metaphor. And there's just, it's going to be fun spending four weeks kind of um, looking at that and what we can practically apply to our lives from that. But this morning we're in John chapter 14, and we're going to read just kind of this interesting passage, and then I'm going to try to answer two questions um, coming out of that. And in verse 22, we pick it up. John chapter 14, verse 22, and it says this. Jesus has just been talking about the Holy Spirit, the the paraclete um, in Greek, the comforter, the counselor, and and Judas pipes up, And, and just notice the irony here. Judas pipes up. Uh, Jesus is talking about leaving and he's going to bring someone's going to encourage and comfort him and isn't this a wonderful kind of uh, time with the disciples and, and Judas pipes up in the middle of it completely dissonant with where Jesus is at and says um, it's a different Judas by the way but he says Lord why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Why do you intend your, uh, to show yourself to us but not to the world? And and Jesus kind of doesn't answer it specifically, which is kind of typical of Jesus. Um, he kind of takes a attack on it. And, um, and he answers this way. He says, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. And he who does not love me will not obey my teaching. And these words you hear are not my own. Uh, they belong to the Father who sent me. This is authoritative It's from God, like I'm trying to get you to understand this. And all this I've spoken while with you, but the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all the things and will remind you of everything that I have said. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. So what's going on here? Jesus is talking about, hey, there's gonna come a very near time here where I'm not gonna be with you. This comforter, this the Holy Spirit's gonna come. And, and he's going to encourage, he's going to comfort you. And then the question gets posed, and it's, it's basically, but, but why don't you just show yourself to the world? And Jesus comes back and says, uh, hey, listen, uh, if you love me, you're going to do what I've commanded. And then God and I, we're going to come and kind of make our home with you. It's, it's going to be this unity, this intimacy. And if you don't love me, you're not going to do what I've commanded. And don't worry, with this whole thing, there's going to be help. The Holy Spirit's going to come and He's going to remind you of all these things I've taught. Now, I think there's something really core here. The question that gets asked of Jesus, I think, is the question that we all kind of, right here, want to ask. Or, or that we're kind of hoping for. And it's this. I want to be, I want to be on the winning team. I, I want to be uh, wearing the jersey of the team that's going to the Super Bowl. That's going to win the Super Bowl. I want, I want the right recognition. I want to be on the team that wins. And when everyone realizes that that team wins, I get to rejoice. I get to celebrate because of that ownership. Um, that's so. So Jesus, we're here. We're coming to Jerusalem. Why don't you just show yourself to everybody and put an end to this and and win? Um, There's death threats. You're battling. You're arguing with the Pharisees. The religious leaders say you're wrong. We know you're right. Why don't you just cut to the chase, show yourself to everyone, and win? Why why don't you win? And then we can jump for joy. We can celebrate, and this whole thing will be cleared up. Uh, we'll, We'll have been on the winning team. Um, and won't that feel so good? Um, I think that's the way most of us approach Christianity. We, we want to be on the winning team. We want to be uh, on the, the side that's recognized as being right. When people don't agree or argue back or push back against us, we want to tell them somehow that they're wrong. We want somebody or, or some other person that, that's maybe more intellectual or more academic to come and help us tell this other person why they're stupid and we're right, and we want to win. Um, not only that, but we want God to kind of just take and, and have our church win, have kind of the Christian culture win in America, so that while we're raising our kids, it's like we're on the winning team. We want to be known um, as the winning team in, in other nations. Uh, you go to the Middle East, you go somewhere else, Indonesia. We want to feel like they know what we know or what we believe that we're on the winning team. So Jesus, just make yourself known. I mean, it would be so much easier if you just made yourself known. We, we could celebrate and get excited and it would be more fun and gratifying if you just made yourself known. And so that surfaces two questions because Jesus doesn't do that. I mean, we know that he doesn't do that. He doesn't even say, no, I'm not going to do that. He says, what he is going to do. It's like when I'm with my kids and, Dad, can I have one more cookie? What did I say? Well, can I have one more cookie? uh, What did I say? You said I couldn't have one more cookie. Well, I haven't changed my mind. You know, like, I mean, Jesus is kind of doing that thing. Like, he doesn't entertain this side question. He just reaffirms what he's already said. And what he's been saying all along is, this is my calling. This is my path. Um, This is what I'm going to do. And, and it's going to set up this state of affairs where you, my followers, are going to get sent out. And if you love me, you will do what I command. And, and don't you worry. Yeah, it's going to be hard. The, the name Christian for a long time in, in, early, in the early church was a name of derision. And so it says in Peter, when people ridicule you because of this name Christian, when you, when you suffer because of the name Christian, this term of derision, when you're labeled, stand strong and persevere. So Jesus, is, you know, I'm sending you out. It isn't going to be easy. Don't worry. Um, I'm, I'm going to be there. I'm going to help you out. So the first question that comes up, and I'll phrase it in terms of something I've been hearing the last couple weeks, and, and I'll say it this way, is Antioch a cause church? Is Antioch a cause church? It's a question I've heard asked a bunch in uh, in the last several weeks and when that question gets asked, I don't always get to respond to kind of criticisms, and so this is kind of an opportunity to kind of clear that up, okay? But when that question gets asked, it's usually asked uh, for a specific reason. It's, it's loaded. If you ask, is Antioch a cause church, you already have in your mind what you mean by a cause church, and there's a good, and there's a bad, and what you want to know is, is Antioch a good or a bad. Does that make sense? If someone asks that question, they're saying, is Antioch a cause church? Because I think cause churches are a bad thing. I want to know if they're in that category, because that wouldn't be good. Now I, I I don't know where that language comes from. I've never used that language. I think it's kind of weird language, but I think what's what's going on there is Antioch talks about justice. They did a, a Congo benefit concert. They they send their missions pastor to Haiti. Um, and have them get up and, and talk about it, and, and different things like that. And are they a cause church? I think is where it's coming from. And, and I'd like to answer it this way. One, it's, it's a weird way of asking a question um, to, to kind of surface the idea of cause and say that somehow causes are bad. What's, what's being implied by that question is that if you're about causes, it means you're probably not about doctrine or theology or substance, and that's bad. So instead of saying bad is bad, um, if, if a church isn't about doctrine or theology or substance, that's not good, it's framed a different way that says if you're a cause church, you're necessarily probably not this other thing, which would be bad. And that right there is is a bad way of asking a question because it's not, it's assuming things that aren't argued for, because there's a difference between style and substance. Substance is substance, okay. Um, Priorities and style and the way things look and language that dresses it up is style. Those are two separate things. But even if we take just this one here and we talk about um, justice. I want to kind of respond to that. Because Jesus says here, if you love me, you're going to obey my commands. And he had just gotten done saying, he's going to say it again, that his command is to love. So if we love Jesus and we're going to identify with him, even though we're going to be uh, subject to persecution and suffering, what we're going to do in that instance is we're going to go out and we're going to love. We're going to love. So if we side with Jesus, we're going to go out and love. It's a very active thing. I want you to read uh, with me Matthew 11 if you turn to it. Matthew 11 is really interesting. John the Baptist is kind of wondering if, uh, if Jesus really is the one who was promised, the one who was sent, kind of this anointed one of God. And, and he's, he's kind of like nearing the end of his life, and he's a little bit panicked, and he's like, is, this, is, is Jesus really the guy? So he sends his, his followers to ask Jesus, and Jesus says this, Verse 7 of chapter 11, um, I'm sorry, verse 4. Jesus replies, go back and report to John. This is what you should tell him. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. So Jesus' answer is very much one of, hey, go tell John what you see happening through my ministry. What's happening through my ministry are things that are broken are being fixed. Uh, things that are, that are off are being set right. Things, that, things, things are being cured. They're made the way they're supposed to be. I'm fixing things. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm healing things with power. Uh, and, and kind of doing what Isaiah prophesied would be done when God finally sent this anointed Messiah into the world. What he didn't say is this. Hey, uh, you guys go back, tell John just to, to dial up the latest podcast. He'll know. He'll hear. I preach like no one else. Um, go tell him. Hey, uh, hey, go back and tell John that, that yes, I am a, a five and three quarter point Calvinist. Um, then he'll know that I'm of God, you know. Um, there's a lot of things that, that Jesus could have said. What Jesus said was, look at what is happening. There's, there's a, a movement that I'm doing to fix the things that are broke. And it's, and it's coming with power that would only come if, if God is with it. So there's this, this unity between what I'm doing and the power in which I'm doing it. Go tell John about this, and he'll know that I'm the one that's sent. Jesus now is going to leave, and he says, Look, I'm, I'm sending you guys out. Paul's going to use this metaphor that we as the church are the body of Christ. We're the, the incarnation. We're now the representation of God in the flesh in this world. And he's gonna send us out. And he says, look, if you're with me, if you're a part of my body, you'll go love other people. You'll go love them. If you're not with me, you're not gonna love other people. Let me just turn to first John real quick. You can turn turn with me if you want. First John chapter 2, it says this. Reading verse 3. First John chapter 2, verse 3. We know that we have come to know Him if we obey His commands. And the man who says, I know Him, I'm a Christian, I'm a good Christian, I'm a religious person, I'm I'm whatever, but does not do what He commands is a liar. And the truth is not in Him. But if anyone obeys His word, God's love is truly made complete in Him. And this is how we know we are in Him, in Christ. Whoever claims to live in Him... Must walk as Jesus did. Must walk as Jesus did. We're going to see very similar writing, like anyone who claims to be in him. That's what John picks up in in chapter 15 about the vine and the branches. But you really see this idea that if there's there's an intimacy with Christ, it's going to come because we're walking in harmony with Christ. That there's a unity, that we're in step with him. And so here's where I go with this whole thing. There are some things that are never wrong. I've been fixated on this for the last month now. There are some things that are never wrong. We tend to be very, um, in how we communicate as Christians, we tend to talk about prohibitions a lot. I mean, that's what we think about when we think of Christianity a lot of times. is Prohibitions. Don't do this. Don't do that. You better not do that. But if you're going to do this, you better do it in this way. Don't be seen with so-and-so. We think in terms of where we're supposed to, to step and making sure we don't step on the cracks. Does that make sense? We, we talk in terms of prohibitive stuff. When, when, uh, when Paul gives the fruit of the Spirit... And he says, look, when you're, when you're in harmony with the Spirit that, that Jesus is sending that's going to teach us these things and he's going to help us, when you're in harmony with that, in love and joy and peace and pa- these these fruit of the Spirit come out of you, okay? He ends that passage in Galatians by saying, against such things, there is no law. There's never a prohibition on love. You're never going to step on a crack. Even when you have to confront somebody, you can speak the truth in love. Even when you have an enemy, you can pray for them, and you can love your enemies. There's never a prohibition. Against such things, there is no law. Well, there's, and so I've kind of been fixated on this idea of maybe instead of always talking about prohibitions, we should talk about where we can step, and it's just never wrong. Like, what are the things we can do, and it's never wrong? Love is never wrong. You want, you want to know what else is never wrong? Humility It's never wrong. In Peter, it says, God opposes the proud, but he, but he lifts up the humble. The, the position of humility in saying, I don't think more of myself than I ought to. I know I'm not perfect. I'm, I'm ready to say I'm sorry at the drop of the hat. I, I just am who I am, and I do the best I can. I honestly do. God lifts up the humble. There's never a time when it's bad to be Humble. False humility can be bad, but it's never bad to be humble. It's never a bad thing to say you're sorry. Even if you don't feel like you messed up, look, obviously I've offended you. I'm sorry. My goal would have never been for a a breach in this relationship. That would have never been what I would have wanted. So even though I didn't intend it, obviously I've offended you. I'm sorry. Can you forgive me? It's never wrong to say you're sorry. And there's something else that's never wrong. And that's justice. Justice is never wrong. Do you understand what I'm saying by that? There's never a time when you step to promote justice or to care about the oppressed or to heal the victims of misfortune or of of persecution or to help the helpless, the orphan and the widow. There's never a time when that's wrong. James says pure religion, like where where you stand and you know you're right. Pure religion, like you get the A plus gold star. Pure religion, where you're standing, is when you look after orphans and widows in their distress. There is no law against it. There's, There's no prohibition against it. Yet, somehow we've developed in the church... A reactionary uh, mentality, a fear-based mentality, a prohibitive mentality that basically says this. If you talk about things other than Jesus or Calvinism or missions, like and by that we mean evangelism. If you talk about something other than that, like love or justice or human rights or, or things like that, relief work. Helping needy people or homelessness. If you talk about these things, you're not talking about the right things. If you're not talking about the right things, you're talking about the wrong things. And if you talk about the wrong things, you're the wrong kind of church. Do you see the line of reasoning? So you must be one of those cause churches, which means you talk about the wrong things, invest in the wrong things, and therefore are illegitimate. You're the wrong kind of church. And the assumption there is that justice can somehow be wrong. And it, and it can somehow not have that much to do with believers. Maybe if you dabble with it on the side. Maybe if it's like such a small sliver of your time or your energy or your money. Yeah, whatever. But you got, you got the main thing, the main thing. You, you, at least the bulk of it's right. And, and this other stuff, whatever. We'll give you that. It's loose change. And there's an idea there that's, that's just wrong. And it's basically saying we want to be on the winning team. We want Christianity to win. Um, and we're going to focus on just these things where it has to do with winning and us being right. And these other things that really don't, there's just no end to them. And, you know, other people can do those things. It's not uniquely Christian. My atheist neighbor um, gave to Haiti. You know, so, so what's distinctive about this? So we need to avoid that. Be over here where, where we're distinctively Christian. And we need to fight these battles as opposed to the other different things out there and show people why we're right over here. And we lose sight of... The idea that justice is never wrong. Lamentations is about the cry of the oppressed. Psalms, a lot of it, is the cry of God saving us in our, in our, our earthly situations. Um, we've talked about Exodus is a story of an oppressed people being set free by a God who redeems and saves The prophets bring this up time and time again. You know, the interesting thing about about even Jonah is Jonah wanted to be right. So even when he preaches to a a broken society and says, look, you need to come back and be healed and follow God, Jonah's like, I would have rather seen them be judged. I would have rather seen them be punished. And so we, we don't even understand that God is a God who, who comes in, wants to fix, wants to restore, wants to heal, wants to save people on all levels, and we, we usually kind of box ourselves in on, on love, or uh, on being right. And so we move forward, and Jesus is now saying, look, I could, I could show myself, but that's not what I'm going to do. I want you who love me to go and love others. I want you to, to heal I want you to nurture. I want you to care for these people. It's not wrong. You do it in my name. And in some sense, when you do these things, people know that you really are getting it from me. So this whole idea of, is Antioch a cause church? It's, it's like, I don't even know what that language means. Okay? Does Antioch care about justice? Absolutely. Because when we care about it, we're never wrong. If we don't care about it and we neglect justice, this is where the... the Isaiah comes in and the prophets were always wrong. Israel got carted off and disciplined. And the the, the immediate answer, if I were to ask you, how come Israel got disciplined? The answer would be, well, because they sinned. That's what I always thought it was. But it says specifically in Isaiah, because you neglected justice, because you didn't care about justice. And by not caring about it, you sinned. And because you sinned, I'm going to now cart you off and it's a discipline thing so that when you come back, you can begin to care about these things that matter. Now, why does all this matter? This world is broken and God is in the business of putting it back together. And in the Old Testament, He was a Savior God and it began with saving people. We, saw, we, we sung it, Psalm 40. It began with saving people out of a pit and saving them out of the hand of the oppressor and saving them out of slavery. God as a Savior in the Old Testament was, was known very much just with the stuff of life where we are helpless, and God would save us out of that. Now, why were we helpless? Circumstantially, why are we helpless? And, and there's not peace, there's not shalom, the way things should be, there's not health, and, and the right kind of uh, love and harmony within society and, and whatnot. Why, why is society broken Why are people mistreated? Why? Because there's something underneath that. And what's underneath that is sin. I mean, we're all fundamentally broken. I mean, I have no trouble believing in the doctrine of original sin. I just, I watch people. I mean, you can read books and you can begin to doubt, like, sin and stuff like that. And then you walk out into the street and you drive for a little while. And then you're like, oh, that's right. (laughs) Right? We're all, we're all sinners. Like, there's just no mistake in it. And I believe in the doctrine of sin. We are broken and estranged from God, and we don't always do what we know we're supposed to do. We choose self over others. So societies are, bro- are broken. People are oppressed because we're sinful. So God in the Old Testament makes himself known as his Savior God. He helps people out of broken situations. Jesus comes, and, and he's asked, Why don't you show yourself and win the fight and fix society? put an end to this fighting, put an end to these things at a societal level. And Jesus says, no, I've got bigger plans. And he dives right to the bottom, and he dies for us to fix this sin thing, right? So salvation now has a spiritual and eternal component. This this thing that's wrong with us is fixed. It's it's no longer broken fundamentally, and we get to begin to um, become like Christ and follow Christ. And be with Him where we were never able to have that same kind of relationship before. So, so look at how this works now. We get to become more like Christ and have a relationship with Him because sin is fixed. What do you think this, this, this begins to do? This begins to affect relationships. It begins to affect uh, society and families and community and how time and money and energy gets spent. It, it begins to kind of change things at this level because this is still bad. It's a, it's a dysfunction. It's a symptom of people being messed up. And as people are being fixed, what happens here? So let me, let me try and pull this together for you. Paul gives basically two tests for elders for leaders of the churches and he says this they're supposed to have character 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 and they're supposed to be able to teach they're supposed to be able to teach so character maturity and they're supposed to be able to teach and then he says now with those things you're going to go to their household you're going to go look at their family you're going to look at the, the wife and the kids and all that and you're going to see if they're fit for leadership, because if they really have character and they're really able to teach, you're gonna see within their family a harmony, a, a shalom, a, a a health, a health that, that you'll know if they can do it there, they can do it at a broader community level. And if you go to their family and you see dysfunction and 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 uh, disagreements and and problems and and every kind of bad thing, you're gonna to begin to understand that. They don't understand how to bring about what God really desires. They don't understand how to make that work. Okay? Now, here, here's the point with this What does it mean to be able to teach? Jesus uh, was asked um, by John's followers, Are you the one? And he said, he said, Yeah, go look at the things that are being fixed. God has shown up like on this planet, in this world. And it's like when Aslan the lion comes into Narnia and it's forever winter, um, but never spring. is kind of the poetic way C.S. Lewis put it. It's always winter, never spring, because the witch is reigning. And when Aslan begins to return to Narnia, what happens as he moves forward? Spring comes. Like, as he, as he moves further into Narnia, behind him comes spring and winter disappears. When when Jesus said, "Go tell John what's happening," he basically said spring is coming. I've showed up. I've showed up on this planet. I've showed up here and spring is coming. Life is happening. Things are being fixed. Health is is the order of the day. When we ask somebody or when we ask of somebody, does he or she or whatever have the gift of teaching? What that really means is not, do they know how to explain Calvinism the way John Piper would? Do they know how to break out systematic doctrines in a really cool rhetorical way? Um, you know, an elder should be someone with character and someone able to teach. They they just man, they have notes all over their Bible. They, they have the most note-filled Bible of anyone in the church. It's, bi- it's the biggest Bible, and there's notes all over it. They have the, they have the gift of teaching. Teaching is about influence. And when you understand that teaching is about influence, you look at the fruit of that influence. Not the words coming out of the mouth, but the fruit that comes from the words coming out of the mouth. That when someone really understands how to slowly work with people and disciple them, able to teach them, like Jesus taught his disciples, you're going to look at a home or or a workplace that's, that's healthy. There's shalom. There's not dysfunction, there's justice, there's, there's peace and harmony. It's all the good things. And so Paul says, look at the family and you'll know whether they're able to teach. We have reduced it all down to inert stuff in the church. Teaching is all about getting the right formulas and packaging it in a certain way. It's not about If the teaching is right, what are you going to see in the church? If I have the gift of teaching, you should see something in my family. You should also see something in this church. I would never call it that you're going to see a cause church. Because it's weird, and and I hate weird Christianity. And so I would never use those words, right? But you should see justice. And you should hopefully see a movement of people trying to use their resources and their energy to bring spring. To walk into winter and behind them comes spring. That's what the gift of teaching does. It helps people know about Christ, fall in love with Christ, have a relationship with Christ, be changed by Christ. And when then that happens, where they put their feet is on on areas that are never wrong. And justice and love are, are those and people's lives are changed. They don't walk by the Samaritan, on, on you know, the guy that's beat up on the side of the road. They would never do that because of what's going on in them, because of what they understand of Christ. So if I have the gift of teaching, you're not going to be able to go ask my five-year-old, um, explain imputed grace and what jo- John Calvin had to say about it. Ready, set, go. You're on the clock. Ten minutes. That you're not going to discern my gift of teaching, by asking my kid that theological question. You're going to see the fruit of it, the evidence of it, with the things that are never wrong, the love, the justice, the way the world was supposed to be if sin wasn't below here, creating dysfunction. So is Antioch a cause church? No, no. We're a church that tries to love like Jesus loved, to restore things to the way they're supposed to be, to care about people the way God in the Old Testament heard the cries of people and cared about them, to be moved with compassion like Jesus was moved with compassion, because it's never wrong. And we do that not in spite of good doctrine, but because of good doctrine, not in spite of teaching. But, but actually believing that teaching is what influences people to actually do this. This is the fruit of good teaching. You see, in, in culture, there's active and passive. And we've somehow got our minds wrapped around this idea that the more passive you are as a Christian, the better Christian you are. Because there's nothing you're doing that someone can look at and say, that's wrong, Christians shouldn't be doing that. So if you actually just like, fill your head with a bunch of theology and don't do anything... You can really claim to be a good Christian because you're not going to step on any cracks. It's it's a really weird thing. Now, here's my, I believe in good doctrine. I believe in intellectual studies. I believe that we're supposed to love, just like Jesus says, if you love me, you're going to love. So where do we put the emphasis? I I always think it should be right down the middle. I I believe in balance. But if we were going to err on one side or the other, let me ask you this. Are there more couch potatoes than workout addicts in America? Are there more couch potatoes than people who work out aggressively in America? Because it is so much easier to be passive than to actually be active. It's so much easier to fill a seat in a church and be passive than it is to be active. It is so much easier to, to try to be on a winning team than to do what Christ has called us to do and be on a work team. See, Jesus is creating a body that's going to go into this world and work. The church is the body of Christ. It's going to go into this world and work, and it's going to be hard work. And Jesus is grabbing people to be on his work crew. We're going to put on work clothes, and they're going to serve. And serve really means just love in working clothes. And that's what Jesus is trying to create. And so it's a lot easier for us to be passive and try to be on the winning team than to don on the orange outfit and to really just say, I, I'm going to love like Jesus loved. And it's going to be hard, but I'm going to work at it. Now, here comes the second question. Because I think legalism on one side is born out of man's effort at cleaning himself up. Okay? It's man's effort trying to make himself more holy and more pure than he is. You understand what I mean by legalism? It's not grace. It's not accepting that God is really fixing what's wrong and being changed that way. It's just trying to be proud and pretty myself up. And I believe that's born out of man's effort. Here's the other side of it though. We can run to justice so strongly that we try to fix the world and clean up the world out of man's effort. So we can try and pretend and and work on cleaning ourselves up out of man's effort, and we can work on cleaning up the world out of man's effort. Both of them are doomed to fail because they're done out of man's effort, not with the strength of God. Jesus did the healing, but he was doing it miraculously because he had the strength of God working in concert with him. And then he says, when I say these words to you, right there out of John 14, these are not just my words, they come from my Father. So it's not just about being about the things of God, it's about doing them in concert with God. So I I think if we don't understand this second part, and the second part is, how do we not burn out? How do we we not get depressed or lose hope when we realize that when we fix one thing, ten more break? When we try really hard, we end up tired and weak at the end of the day, um... Someone was making fun of the pastors at Antioch the other day. They were like, seems like every time Brandon, you, or Justin get up, Ken, you talk about how sleep-deprived you are, you know, and, and it's, that's from having, like, three-plus kids each, you know, it's just, it's just par for the course, and that's our reality, so we talk about it all the time, and you guys are probably over it, but the point is, um, we're, we're weak, we're tired, and we work hard, and you know what, we don't all of a sudden get at the end and go, oh, it's like I have, like an inexhaustible source of energy. I'm just going to keep going. Like we actually hit a wall and then we get a little depressed and then we we wonder, is it worth it all? Just like when you get tired, just like when you get depressed, just like when you endure grief, just like when you lose a loved one and you ask, is it really worth it? All this effort to fix broken things. And if we're doing it in our own strength, we are going to just fall apart. We're going to burn out. We're going to walk away. We're going to get bitter at God. God, I did the things you told me to do. It didn't work. I'm now mad at you. Let's just read again what it says in John 14 here. So the second question is, how do we really make this work? Trying to be about the things of God. What really drives that? What's the mechanism? It says this, if anyone loves me, verse 23 again, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching and my father will love him. And we, meaning me and my Father, we will come to him or to her and make our home with him. And then he goes on and promises the Holy Spirit again. The Holy Spirit will come and remind you and teach you and comfort you. And there, I took the title of this message from Thomas Akempis, who lived in the 1400s, 1500s, early 14 to 1500s, um, and he was a, a Catholic mystic. And, and again, the, the right team winning Christians do some really interesting things. The Catholic mysticism before the Reformation was a people or a group of people that were so desperate for a relationship with God, with Christ, in a church that was very structured, very hierarchical, that they just pursued a, what we would think of as solitude and a prayer life and and a personal relationship with their Savior. And, and that was under the label of mystic. Thomas Aquinas translated by hand the Bible over four times completely all the way through. He was more of a Bible scholar than any of us. And just because he was a Catholic mystic, you know, I mean, there's going to be my Christian brothers that are going to be like, oh, we can't talk about that in church. Um, guy yearned for a relationship with God, for intimacy with God. Let me just read a little bit from... His classic, The Imitation of Christ. And he says this. He quotes Jesus out of Luke and says, The kingdom of God is within you. Turn then to God with all your heart. Forsake this wretched world, and your souls shall find rest. Learn to despise external things, to devote yourself to those that are within, and you will see the kingdom of God come unto you. That kingdom which is peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, gifts that are not given to the impious. Christ will come to you offering his consolation if you prepare a fit dwelling for him in your heart, whose beauty and glory wherein he takes delight all are all from within. And his visits with the inward man are frequent, and his communion sweet and full of consolation, his peace great and his intimacy wonderful indeed. Therefore, faithful soul, prepare your heart for this bridegroom, that he may come and dwell within you. He himself says, and he quotes John 14, If anyone love me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him, and will make our abode with him. And here's the point I want to make on the second thing. The imitation of Christ Being like Christ, doing the things that Christ does, comes from intimacy with Christ. And that's what we're going to talk about with four messages on John 15. But the imitation of Christ comes with Jesus and, and God and the Holy Spirit coming and dwelling with us and reminding and working and laboring with us, giving us gifts that don't come to those who only think about themselves. And so the imitation of Christ comes from intimacy with Christ. And the only way that we can make ourselves clean is through grace. And the only way that we can sustain the hope that we have and in, in the the energy that we need to work in this world to be, to be uh, ministers of reconciliation, to be agents of, of Christ, to be His body, the only way we can sustain that is grace. So it's grace that first makes us able to have the relationship, and it's in that intimacy and it's in that relationship that we get what we need to continue it on. There's two things we must do. We must do the things that we're supposed to do, that Christ did, that are never wrong we have to do those in His strength. We have to do those because the teaching of Christ influences us and calls us and compels us to love this world. Love begets love. Grace begets grace. Forgiveness begets forgiveness. We begin to realize that the things are, that are never wrong, all of them, love, joy, peace, patience, you think of those things, every single one of the things that are never wrong are contagious. Have you ever thought of that? Every single one of the things that are never wrong are contagious. And when we do the things that are never wrong through the power of the Holy Spirit, remember those are the gifts that He gives. It's the fruit that the Holy Spirit bears, when we begin to imitate Christ, it is contagious. And when we walk as a church, Antioch, as a family, the Whitesmas, as a person, Ken, when we walk as Christians into this world, doing the things that are never wrong, that are contagious, behind us comes spring. It's so beautiful and so simple, and it's God at work in this world through us, making all things new the way it was supposed to be. We get to be a part of that. And if we choose not to, we're going to default to trying to be on the winning team. We're going to default to being passive. We're going to default to prohibition thinking, where all we think about is where not to step. And we're going to begin to insulate ourselves from the things that are never wrong, by finding little ways of, of turning it into a bad thing, like saying, are you about causes? Without really understanding what's beneath that and how silly that sounds. So may we, as the band comes up, may we be about the things of Christ. May the, the love Christ has for us beget love for the things that he loved. And when we do the things that are never wrong, may the fruit of our lives be evident may the people around us be changed may we make a difference and may that just be <laughs> may that be something that we can all rejoice in instead of winning we can look at real change and that it's good and we can celebrate it so let's pray father we just commit this church to you we cry aloud for for grace without your grace that sustains us we'd be lost We cry for your Holy Spirit. Your Holy Spirit is so much more than this impersonal force that we've made him. It's something that that you have given. It's yourself, a piece of yourself you have given to us to sustain us, to encourage us, to equip us, to give us the tools necessary to love us and to remind us of truth, the kind of truth that leads us to live lives in concert, with you and your desires for this world. I just pray for your Holy Spirit, and I pray that through that, we would be able to love you and to love Christ, and that if we love you, we will then obey your commands to love others. I just pray that we would not take the simple things and make them too complex. I pray that we would not take the faith that's supposed to be the faith of a child and make it the faith of a... a, a (laughs) crazy confused person that can't see up from down let's just let it be simple father help us see truth where truth is help us see untruth where untruth is let us be excited about being christians not overwhelmed because it's too heavy too legalistic just just do a work in us father in christ's name